Please be seated. Uh, just a quick note uh, before we begin that the uh, number up there is not correct. It's just a mistake. It's 66 when we uh, sing the closing hymn. 66 to be uh, aware of that. It's uh, to God be the glory. Let me read to you a portion from a masterpiece, a masterpiece written by the Apostle Paul. Now every, every book of the Bible could be called a masterpiece because they all come from the mind of the master. Uh, these are not the words of men, they're the words of God. And he uh, put them in the minds of his servants in order that they would write them the way he wanted and that we would hear them the way they're meant to be heard. And this is a powerful, powerful portion of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. It was written to the Roman church, it's filled with insight. But this particular section that I want to look at with you this morning uh, comes from the fourth chapter. And although, uh, again, there's a misprint in the bulletin, it's only a minor one, but it doesn't end in, in verse 45 if you've opened up the, your own Bible. It ends in verse 25. It's Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25 and the context is that the Apostle Paul is fleshing out what God revealed through the ancient prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, was living in ancient times and fearful of an assault, a, a, a really an attack by the Assyrian forces up north. And they were in a terrible situation because Israel could not defend themselves. And Habakkuk goes to the Lord and he asks the question, God, how can you let these vicious, violent people attack your people? We are your people. And eventually God speaks to him and he doesn't give him the answer I think that Habakkuk was hoping for. He says, trust me, trust me. You may not know at the moment what I am doing, but I know what I am doing. You trust me, Habakkuk. And then he says, write this as it's a symbol, I guess, as big as the clouds in the sky so everybody can see it. The just, the just shall live by their faith. Faith is the secret to it all. Faith in God's grace is salvation. And this letter to the Romans is based on that verse that Habakkuk, at least symbolically, was to write through the heavens. The just shall live by faith. And in the letter he writes to Rome, he spells out what exactly that means. And we ought to understand uh, in those words. So I'm not reading the words here in chapter one, but I'm picking up on the thought here in chapter four. And I want to read verses 13 through 25 and concentrate mostly, listen to it when I read it. In fact, I'll emphasize it because we want to really grasp what he says in verse 25. But beginning in verse 13, he says, The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. If it's faith, it's not faith. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. In other words, you can't transgress a law that doesn't exist. If the law has been satisfied and it's been 
done away with in a sense, then, uh, then uh, you know, it can't condemn anybody because it doesn't exist. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your descendants be. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one from the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things, all things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has uh, given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As through God, we, as if through God, we were, he was imploring you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then that 25th verse, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. That's just a snippet out of that tremendous book of Romans that runs 16 chapters and goes into depth explaining why it was, in fact, who it is, and why it was Christ came. And I want to look at this context, but really think about with you this 25th verse and what it's really saying. Now, when the Lord himself came, he had to be identified. He identified himself. He did it with his disciples at the beginning. He did all kinds of things that can't be done. In other words, miracles. Uh, the first one he showed to his disciples was when he changed water into wine at a wedding feast. There was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was invited and Jesus came. And they ran out of wine. Now this is not in the text, so don't take it to the bank. But Jesus brought disciples with him. And when you're trying to feed a flock and you add 12 men, that might have been why he ran out of wine. Who knows? But nevertheless, that was an embarrassment for, for a newly married man who's having a celebration of his wedding. And so Jesus' mother, who's apparently part of the work crew, crew who's getting this dinner ready, because she goes to Jesus and she says to him, they have run out of wine. And he says, why tell me? Well, she knew why to tell him, because he was able to make wine out of water if he had to, because she knew who he was. By the way, I'm preaching to you the first sermon, not in the same way and not in the same words and not the same text I mean, at all. But I, I preached from this pulpit back in 54 years ago. At that time, I was being looked upon as a candidate for the pulpit. 
and I preached a sermon I titled An Original in a World of Carbon Copies. I wanted to be clear about who this Christ of the Bible was and wasn't. This Christ in Scripture is the only human being born of a virgin, only human being to live a sinless life perfectly, and the only human being ever to rise permanently from the dead. That was the sermon that morning, because I wanted to be clear if they called me to their pulpit what I would preach. I preached that sermon for the next 54 years one way or another. And I'm going to preach it this morning from this particular text. This Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, was God in a human form. He had been born not of man, not, he, was a, he was not a, a, a natural descendant in that way. He was born from above. The Holy Spirit moved in Mary's womb and brought forth a child born of God, the only begotten, the only one born of God, Jesus Christ. And Mary knew what had happened, and when they ran out of wine at Cana of Galilee, who knows what had happened in her home while he was growing up, but she knew that he had the answer to this. And although it sounds like he's being nagged on, because he says, what have you to do with me, woman? I've never figured that quite out. Uh, it's his mother. But anyway, he goes and he sends away the steward with a massive amount of water. Somebody said it was over 100 gallons in those pots that they filled with water. And when they emptied them, they were wine. He changed water into wine. And I've thought about that. Think about that. What did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to give us a new nature. His nature. Not a sinful nature, his nature. Born of God, no sin to pay for. Perfect, a perfect man. And he came into the world to give us his nature. Well, what did he do first in miraculous terms? He changed the nature of water and made it wine. He showed in that symbol of sorts what he had come to do to his disciples. And then he went on, John tells us, to do all kinds of signs. He, he took a, a man crippled off his deathbed by simply saying, get up and walk. And the man who had been uh, hurting and helpless for so many years got up and walked away. And you go through the Gospel of John. It doesn't matter if it's walking and he needs to walk. If he needs sight to see, he touched the blind man. Didn't work the first time. Who knows why? He touched him twice. Touched the blind man twice, and the man who was born blind could see. And that book of John is interesting in that way. It takes us through the ministry of Jesus Christ as to his showing off or showing us himself through signs and wonders. But anyway, let's go back for a minute to Paul here. Paul is explaining faith. Paul is explaining faith to us. And he says that Abraham's the first of our number, in a sense. Abraham believed God. God had told him at the age of 100, and his wife was, uh, she had gone well past the age of childbearing. She was, her womb was dead, the sisters say. But God promised that they would have a son. There would be a, a, an inheritor in Abraham's family, one of his own, one of his boys, one of his children, not his slave, who he feared must become his heir. Eliezer of Damascus was his slave, and he thought, well, if I have no children, I must give it to someone. I'll give it to my, my property and my inheritance to, to Eliezer. 
And God spoke to Abraham and said, no, it's going to be one of your sons. And I wonder what conversation went on between Abraham and Sarah after that. We're going to have a baby, and I'm 100, and you're 90, and we're going to have a baby. But you know what he did? He believed God. He said, I don't care. If God said it, he'll do it. And he did it. And they got Isaac. So that began the whole process. Faith became the issue in life on earth. Faith in the promises of God. And that's what he's, Paul is talking about in these past, this passage I just read, these few verses out of the book of Romans. He's saying uh, the promise to Abraham, he picks up on that promise to have this child. The promise to Abraham and his descendants, he's going to have descendants. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world. That's what the promise was. Your family is going to be the family that inherits my created order. That's what God is really saying to Abraham, who is too old to have a child, as I say. But uh, he says that, that did not slow Abraham down. He decided to believe not what he could see, but he decided to believe God. You know that's what we're called to do? We're called, I could proclaim whatever he gave to proclaim. You know what I watched for 50 years? I watched him perform the words he put in my mouth. That's all it was, pro proclamation. And he performed them over all those years. I just point that out because I want you to know this, this building and us, we didn't come from nowhere. It was really kind of just like it came to Abraham when God gave him a son. He's still doing the same thing. So it is uh, that... Uh, when you come to this 25th verse, because I can go on and on about all these verses, and there's a lot of them, and I don't think you need to hear them all expressed. But I do want us to focus for a moment on this 25th verse. In fact, in order for me to kind of refresh myself and just think about it, I walked over into the, into the graveyard over there, because there's one gravestone uh, that's, they're all meaningful, every family, and they're, and they're all loved ones who have now departed. But there's a particular gravestone over there that's very meaningful to me. And it is Ray and Vivian Herrick's gravestone. Some of you who are long-timers here, you'll remember Ray and Vivian. Now, Ray died back in 97, so that was a long time ago. And the reason I went over to just stand and look at that gravestone is to recall what really happened when God, in His grace, brought that couple to this church. Uh, the, the Herricks, uh, if you're aware of missions and missions around the world and missionary ac uh, actions, uh, back about 1975, 76, there were two missionary outreaches to the Middle East. Tough, tough place to, to, to preach the gospel and do your missionary work. Places like Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, up, up into uh, uh, the northern part of that country. And there were two groups in England that went into that area basically looking to bring Christ to women. They were both focused primarily on women. One was called the Women's Union Missionary Society, WOMS. And the other had a different name because they were more focused on the medical end of things. BMMF, Bible Medical Missionary Fellowship. They were both focused in the same territory, the Middle East. They were both focused on the same group, mostly women. And they were now into the next century, still operating, still bringing the gospel into that territory, 
But what was happening to both groups was they were being weighed down by administrative costs. And it turned out that Ray Herrick and Vivian Herrick, who are, again, interred in our graveyard, they were one on one board and one on the other. Uh, and so one was on one's board, Women's Junior Missionary Society, and one was on BMMF, Bible Medical Missionary Fellowship. And they worked, they labored, they persuaded those two groups, let's come together and get one administrative operation going. It'll reduce our costs and make us able to do more missionary work in that needy area of the world where the gospel of Christ has not been really fully proclaimed. And in 1976, they succeeded and brought together InterServe. And then, 10 years after that, Ray and Vivian ended up retiring, he did, from his work, and they came to Byfield. And they were very, very helpful. I think if Sharon, and, uh, Sharon uh, Trudell were here instead of me, she could probably fill in a lot more detail because she was chairing the missions committee at that time. But uh, they were quite a couple, and they were very, very influential for me because they introduced another world to me through them that I hadn't been in touch with. And it was great because we were focused from the time I came on mission. What's the mission of the Christian church? And what someone said once way back, and I caught it and kept it, the church exists for mission the way fire exists by burning. If there's no mission, there's no church. If there's no flames, there's no fire. And that was something that stuck with me. And it was very interesting, and I won't go through this either because you have lunch from your plan. But the point is that we began to be almost flooded by people who had a missionary heart. And Ray and Vivian had already done this work of creating InterServe, which if you go online, you'll see is a big operation today. InterServe. But why I'm bringing it up is not so much even that as a conversation I had with Ray that I think comes down on this text, verse 25 of Romans 4, where it says, He was put to death for our transgressions and raised again for our justification. Well, Ray and I were having a conversation in his home, and he said something I never expected to hear from him. And he said, Bill, I don't know if I'm really right with God. And he went on enough to say, I got what he was getting. It wasn't that he was denying his Christian faith. It wasn't that. But he was feeling that he should have, if God were really pleased with him and really accepting of him, he would have done more. Now, this is a man, as I say, that I look up to, certainly and rightly so. Uh, his work was notable and his uh, heart was there. And yet he had something lacking. And I said to myself, quickly so that I could say it to him. There's something going on even in biblical Christian circles because there's two types of Christianity. There's liberal that has changed who Christ is, made it out to him out to be someone else and now follows him. Or there is the, those of us who stick strictly to the Bible and say this is the real Christ. This is the one God revealed to the world. And I, and I knew we were on the same page, Ray and I, as far as that was concerned. There was no doubt. But Ray had this lingering feeling obviously it was hurting him enough that he was willing to express it to me and I think I won't want to be taken to the bank on this either because that was 30 plus years ago but I think I took him to Romans 4 25 
I think I took him to Romans 4.25 and I said, Ray, let's talk about this text. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. You, I think you're really hinting at in some way, am I really justified? Am I justified in believing that God is who he is, that he is taking me? Now, I don't, I don't think he really was doubting the faith. I really don't. I think he was getting old. He was, in his, he was then in his retirement years, and I think he was thinking about these things. He knew the day would come when he would have to answer to God for his life. And I think that was behind his question. Anyway, I didn't probe him. That wasn't the point. I said, Ray, let's think about this. Let's think about it. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. I asked him a question. I asked you a question. Do you believe that Jesus actually, physically, in the body, rose from the dead? That he came out of his tomb, that he talked to the woman near at the tomb site and uh, sent her on and then met with the disciples that night in the upper room and then met with the two on the road to Emmaus who were all discouraged because they thought Jesus was a goner. They thought, he has died, we put our hope in him. What a false hope that was, he's dead. And they didn't recognize him, but he was walking with them down the road. And so the point of the Bible, it can't be clearer, that Jesus rose in the body and presented himself in many ways for, for 40 days to his disciples to get them solid on solid ground. And so I went back to this verse and said, now, it says here in most of the translations, what I just read to you, by the way, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. And it's not wrong, but it could be more clear. Because the word in the Greek that's translated for, put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification, is a little word that can also, and maybe even more accurately, be translated on account of, or just because. It could be translated, who was put to death because of our trespasses and was raised again because of our justification. What does he mean? What does he mean when he says that? Well, let's take ourselves back for a moment into the ancient world, the Old Testament era, uh, when Israel was God's people before God took him away from Israel and gave it to his disciples and created a new Israel, an Israel after the spirit, not after the flesh. Let's, let's go back to the old Israel. Now, they would really have a great celebration of their forgiveness by slaughtering a lamb, and the high priest would take the lamb's blood into the temple quarters where the, nobody else could go but him. And if God accepted that, the signal was the priest would return to them. He would return alive, and it meant that that sacrifice had been accepted by God and on behalf of the priest and on behalf of the people. And he had a row of bells on the bottom of his garment. And so they listened for the bells to ring. And when they heard him, they knew he was coming back out of the inner quadrant, out of the holy place, alive, which was their signal that they were acceptable. God had accepted the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And do you know that's what Paul is saying here? He is really saying he was put to death because of our transgressions, our sins. Our sins were laid on him. His father laid them on. He delivered him over. I like that verse, that translation better than some of the ones they use too now in English. 
God the Father delivered over his son to be a blood sacrifice for us. That he might share his, shed his blood that we might not. That we might live in him. That we might live his life which he is going to live forever. And so Jesus took not an animal, not a lamb, not a, not a beast. He took himself into the inner place and gave up his blood on the cross. It was his blood that was offered. Now, how do you know God accepted that? Maybe he said, no, you're mistaken. These are a bunch of scoundrels. I'll never forgive them at all. They're unforgivable. No, not what he did. Jesus came back out of the holy place alive. And though he was real, let me read this to you in the sense I think it's meant to be read. And what I was sharing, what I was sharing with Ray, you're concerned about, are you really secure in your faith? Are you really secure? Can anything just take you out of the hand of God? I said, it can't, Ray, it can't. Because it has not to do with you in terms of what happened. It's what happened to Jesus Christ that concerned you. You want to look to what happened to him, not to you. You're the recipient of what happened to him. Yes, wonderful. But it happened to him for you. And I was sharing that with him, that you, you can be at peace if you really believe. Do you really believe, Ray? And he did. That God's son walked out of his tomb. And Ray said, yes, I do. I said, then listen to this voice. He was put to death. And I'm going to change the translation. It legitimately from four. That's so weak. To on account of. He was put to death on account of our sins. That's why he died. He didn't sin. We did. And he died to pay for them. And then on account of that payment being received. On account of that. He was risen from the dead. He came back from the tomb. To prove that God accepted his sacrifice for us. When he offered it on the cross. And I wanted the church to know when I came in 1968 that one way or another that was what they were going to hear for the next 50 plus years. <laughs> now, now I was smart enough not to preach the exact same sermon, but it was the exact same message. And God used that message to build this church. And if you take that message to your heart, he will build your life on it. But just for now, forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, word and pray that as Miriam comes to sing about it, to come here and to sing uh, about your love, uh, let that really be a seal to what they've heard said, that that song may lodge it in our hearts and minds. Uh, and I'm going to invite Miriam to come now uh, before we uh, uh, have our conclusion of the service and sing that for us.